yeah. All right, so this morning, um, we're going to be in Psalm 61. I missed by one week being able to preach Psalm 62. Um, so if you know me and you've been here for any amount of time, uh, we sing that song a lot. Uh, spoiler alert, we're singing it next week. Um, but uh, but I'm, really, I'm really stoked for, uh, for y'all to hear what Corey is going to be bringing next week on Psalm 62. Um, but today we're in Psalm 61, and so uh, let's start our time by reading that together and then uh, praying, and we'll dive in and see what the Lord has for us. Psalm 61, to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. God be with us this morning as we explore this psalm. Help me to speak clearly. Help us to hear clearly. Help us walk away from this place changed by your word. May your presence here um, through your Holy Spirit help us to see Jesus. Help us to be more like him. Amen. So Psalm 61 is, um, we see is a psalm of David. Um, throughout the psalms you see those ascriptions, the part at the beginning um, sometimes you see those titles at the top. So like in my Bible, it says, lead me to the rock. That's not actually in the text, right? Those are, those are added later. But things like those instructions at the top, the to the choir master, that kind of stuff, that stuff is in the text. And sometimes that can be uh, very illuminating for us, which we'll see in a little bit. Um, we don't know exactly when Psalm 61 was written, but we can assume from a couple of context clues that David is running away again. <laughs> this is not the first time that this has happened. Um, but because of the kind of kingly language that we see later in the psalm, that it's very likely that he's running from Absalom when he is in his rebellion. And so um, that, is, that is important to, to see and remember as we, as we think about the, the words here. Um, there are a lot of different structures. Um, one thing that I really love about the Psalms is being reminded that it is literature, it's poetry, and the way that the Psalms are structured is on purpose, right? Like it's not just a bunch of words or sentences strung together. Like the, the authors of these Psalms, uh, or rather songs, right? These were the songs of the, the people, then the songs of Israel, right? Like these were written in a particular way to communicate a, a particular thing. And so the structure, when we look at uh, the Psalms, is important. And so what we see here, uh, there are a lot of different ways that this was um, uh, presented as, or a lot of different structures that uh, people suggested. But the one that I think uh, was the most simple and the most uh, clear is that we have two sets of a petition and praise. Right, so the first the first part, verses one and two, we have this petition. Then verses three through five, we have this praise. 
And then in verses six and seven, we have this petition again. And then in verse eight, we see praise. And so um, this back and forth that we see shows us that David um, is confident that God is faithful, right? That God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he's going to do, even uh, when it may not feel like that when we see the start of this psalm. Honestly, seeing how the psalm opens, it's hard to believe that David really had any confidence in God at all. Um, In fact, uh, I would say we see almost the exact opposite, right? Um, In the opening stanza, David's crying out. He says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Um, That sounds pretty desperate, right? Um, This ends of the earth language is really important. Um, because uh, it means a couple of different things for us. Um, First off, we don't really know because it doesn't tell us whether this is physical distance, right? That like God or David feels physically far away from God or if it's spiritual or emotional distance. Um, But either way, it it applies, right? So I think both of them are valid valid interpretations. some commentators mentioned that this end of the earth language is like literally at the edge of death. Like, the, like they would say that when you hear this kind of language that, um, that it is like at the edge of the world and in a sense, again, that, that potentially like David felt like he was literally dying because of this, of this distance. Um, but, um, you know, the... The, the way that it, that it comes across, one of two things is for sure true. Either David felt physically distanced from the temple, right, which was the, the place where God met uh, Israel on earth, or he felt spiritually, emotionally distant. And, and even if we're not David, right, we are not David, but how many of you have felt this way before, right? Like you feel far from God. I think that that is, I think that's fair. But for David and the rest of Israel, the, the temple, right, was the geographical center of all of life, um, both spiritual and their literal everyday lives. Everything would point back to the temple for, for Israel. Um, and so it makes sense that if David feels like he is far from there, right, that he would feel like he is far from the presence of God, that he would be in this kind of distress. Um, The other understanding though, that metaphorical or that spiritual distance, um, again, I think we can relate to, right? Like we, if you follow Jesus uh, for any period of time, like it's very likely that there's been at least a stretch where where you have felt far from God. Um, The, those times that, that we feel this way can be really heavy, right? We can feel lonely, distressed. It can feel alienating. It can lead us to feel a sense of hopelessness or despair um, that things may never be made right. So what do you do when that happens? I think that's a, I think that's like a, a, a really, it's a very important question for us to consider, right? Like, when we feel this way, what is our response? 
Whatever the response uh, may be, one thing uh, is, is true. Even when you can't get to God, God can get to you, right? Even when you cannot get to God, God can get to you. David here, he, he cries out. He cries out and petitions for God to hear him. And this praise, hear my prayer, is one that we see in many different psalms, right? Um, but mostly when we see psalms of lament. David, uh, or throughout, throughout the psalms, right? So here's some, some examples. Psalm 5-2, it says, Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Psalm 28-2, Hear my cry for mercy as I call for help, as I lift my hands toward your most holy place. Psalm 130, verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Psalm 86, 6, hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. Psalm 143, 1, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Over and over and over and over again, we see this type of petition to God to, to hear, right? This crying out um, so, that, so that he hears. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I hesitate to talk to God this way. Um, I think that it can feel really disrespectful or, or, or rude, maybe, to, to approach God in this way. That's just what I feel. But if we look at the Psalms, I'm not sure why I feel that way, because we see this over and over and over and over again. We should have confidence that we can come to God in this way, this desperation, this, this crying out. Uh, for help. In his book, um, A Praying Life, uh, Paul Miller, he talks about lament and helps to explain why it feels really messy. Um, He says this, that's what makes laments so messy. They bring together two things, reality and promise. Each of these things recoil from one another. Lament connects two hot wires, God's promise and the problem. When that happens, sparks fly. Laments may seem disrespectful, but in fact, they are filled with faith, a raw, pure form of faith that simply takes God at his word. Every child is a professional lamenter. Okay, all my parents out there. Every child is a professional, professional lamenter, as in, Mom, you said you would take me to the pool this week. Why haven't you taken me to the pool this week? I want to go today. The child is bringing together promise, mom said that she was going to take me to the pool, with reality, mom hasn't taken me to the pool, right? He continues, we think laments are disrespectful, but God shows us the opposite. Lamenting shows that you are engaged with God in a vibrant living faith. We live in a deeply broken world, and if the pieces of our world Um, if the broken pieces of our world aren't breaking your heart and you aren't in God's face about them, then you are becoming quietly cynical. And that stings a little bit. He says, you've thrown in the towel. But what is so striking about biblical laments is that God almost never critiques them. He delights in hearing our messy hearts. So, why, why why do we hesitate? We see this example over and over again, right? And God almost never critiques them. 
David lets God hear his messy heart. And he does so because he feels like he's at the end of the earth, that his heart is faint. This idea that his heart is faint is really powerful, right? So not only does he feel far away, but he feels weak, right? Um, He feels overwhelmed, exhausted, totally spent physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He's at the end of his rope. And so he cries out, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, uh, the, the, the wording here is really important, right? David doesn't say, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. He's not talking about some random rock. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And literally, he's talking about God. He says, essentially, lead me to yourself, right? For you are higher higher than I am. God, for David, is a safe place. And the reality, though, is that this is us all the time, right? How many of you um, can lead yourself to the place that you need to be exactly all the time by your own strength? None of us, right? Literally, David is saying, I need you to pick me up and place me on this high rock, right? I need you to pluck me out of my circumstance and put me in a place that is safe. H.B. Charles, he says, as I mentioned um, in in our point earlier, he says, even when you can't get to God, God can get to you. You can never be so far away from God that he cannot hear you when you call. As I was thinking through, um, as I was thinking through this uh, text and just trying to think of like illustrations of how to help us understand this, um, this thought came to mind of uh, being in the house and needing to like get someone's attention, right? And so I, there have been times where like I'll be upstairs and I'll need to get, let's say Whitney's attention. And my assumption is that she is like, downstairs, like on the other side of the house, maybe, right? And so I like yell out, right? And she's like right by the door, right? And so uh, I didn't need to yell. I I didn't need to yell, right? I could have just spoken the name clearly, but I didn't know that that's where she was. I didn't feel like that's where she was. And so I cry out, right? Like I, I, I call her name loudly, right? Um, and so here I see David doing this and God almost being like, hey man, like I'm, I'm right here, right? I'm, I'm right here. You don't, have to, you don't have to yell out to me in that way. But still, he doesn't say that's inappropriate, right? God doesn't chastise, come back and chastise David for the way that he approaches him. He, he responds to his honesty there. And so um, what's interesting is that at the beginning here, we see this, this, this kind of tone of, of ex- like desperate exhaustion, right? Um, this, this feeling that he is as far away from God as he can possibly be. Um, one thing, um, this, is, this is a thought that um, occurred to me this morning as I was talking about this. I talked, I talked last year when, when I preached about singing, right? And so I'm going to take another, uh, just a couple of minutes to talk about singing. So, so I, I, you know, I brought up the fact that 
one of the ways that we can learn to control our emotions, right, is by getting control of our breath, right? Um, I'm not always great at that, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying, right? Like when we feel ourselves getting out of control, like intentionally taking breaths, like, like counting to 10, right? Breathing in and out, uh, being mindful of, of that breath in our body literally helps to calm down our, our hearts and our minds. It helps us to, to think more clearly. It helps to calm down our bodies. And as we see later, David is going to, to sing, right? He's going to sing out as a response of praise. And I think that um, one of the things that maybe a strategy that we can use when we feel this way, right? When we feel downtrodden, uh, exhausted, far from God, is to sing, right? Because when we physically do this act of singing, it can literally calm our bodies down, calm our minds and our hearts down, and help us to think clearly about who God is and what he has done for us, right? So that we remember his faithfulness. And this is exactly what David does now, we see this switch in tone, right? So David is crying out, and, um, and then he says this. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. So why is this important? This was one of the most fascinating things to me as I was studying, um, getting ready to preach, is kind of this four-step move from David feeling far away from God towards being close with God. So let's look at each of, um, each of these pictures here, right? So we see that God calls David a refuge. We see that he calls him a strong tower. He asks to dwell in his tent, and then finally to take shelter under his wings. So let's look um, uh, at each of these individually. So this first picture of uh, God as a refuge. We can assume that when David says this, that he is thinking back to times uh, where God has literally done this for him, right? Um, God has protected him in the wilderness as he fled from Saul, or as we saw, as, as we saw earlier, that most likely he is now fleeing from Absalom. David is remembering these real times that God has provided protection for him. But of the four pictures in these verses, um, the, the wilderness refuge is the least intimate provision of care that, that we see. The image is closest to that of God being a rock, right? This refuge, this rock. And in fact, um, we, it, God is linked to being this, this rock uh, throughout the Psalms. Psalm 18.2 says, my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 31, it talks about my rock of refuge. Psalm 62, my mighty rock, my refuge. Psalm 94, the rock in whom I take refuge. We envision David safe, though alone, hiding and biding his time before returning to the city. David then takes one step closer to God, calling him a strong tower against the enemy. So at this time in history, a tower would have been a refuge for people in times of an attack, right, from, from enemies. But 
it differs from this wilderness refuge in that it is part of a city and part, and, and part of a walled city in this case. So the idea is not of a person fleeing uh, from home, but of a person defending himself in his own city when threatened by hostile forces. Presumably, David would not be alone in this condition, right? Others would have been taking refuge in the tower with him and would be helping him to defend it. So David is alone in the wilderness. He's still not quite back to the city, right? But he is in the presence of other people who are helping him to to fight this, this battle, right? David takes another step and he petitions God to let him dwell in his tent forever. Tent imagery here um, could have two main uh, meanings, and both are important. So one meaning could relate to hospitality in the culture in which David lived. Um, James Boyce notes that the word tent conjures up a domestic scene in which a host might welcome strangers, as Abraham welcomed the three heavenly visitors outside his tent near the great trees of Mamre. A visitor in such a situation would be entitled to his host's most solicitous care and protection. So we see one image of David being invited, essentially being invited into God's home, right? And and cared for um, extravagantly. So Um, while this is a totally valid interpretation, I think there's actually a more specific way that David is using tent here. Um, Boyce continues, he says... um, There may be more in the image than this, since the word tent is also translated as tabernacle. And in the Old Testament, um, this this word frequently refers to the wilderness tabernacle where the ark of God was kept. If David is using the word in this sense, as he probably is, he's asking to dwell where God himself dwells, right? An idea he also expresses in Psalm 27, where it says, One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So we've now taken three steps, right? We've taken, we're in the wilderness refuge, the rock, right? We are in the strong tower. We've taken one more step into the city, right? Into the tabernacle, into this house of the Lord, right? But David wants to go even one step further, Right? In this fourth and final image, David relates, um, or, or David, David asks that he can take shelter under the, the shadow of, of God's wings. Right? Again, there are multiple interpretations here. This is one of my favorite things about, um, about digging in like this because we, we have English translations, that's really helpful. Um, I don't know about you, but I prefer not having to read the Old Testament in Hebrew. Um, I learned it, I don't know, eight years ago in seminary, uh, but I don't use it often. So I'd kind of be out of luck if that was what I was left to, right? But we have these translations, but sometimes we miss, we can miss things, right? Um, and a lot of times we miss things maybe because we just don't have context, right? Like context is incredibly helpful. And so... Um, this is, this is why I think this shadow of your wings imagery, um, can, it really struck me this week. So, so one is maybe the most uh, obvious interpretation, right? In that God, or, or that David rather, is bringing to mind this picture of like a mother hen bringing her chicks under her wing to, to protect them, right? 
And we see this language in other places in Scripture. Uh, we even see Jesus using this language um, later on. But, um, and, and that, is, um, that is really close, right? Really close. Um, the, uh, you know, as, as, I, as I was reading, um, uh, one of the commentators made the point that, like, when, when we picture, when we picture these chicks being brought to, uh, under the wing, like close to the breast of their, of their mother, right? Some would say that this is indelicate. Um, but David wouldn't have considered it wrong to want to be sheltered beneath the wings against the very breast of God, right? And nor should we. Um, this person said, never fear to be intimate with God. God desires to be intimate with you and is only hurt when you remain at a distance or draw back from his embrace, right? God desires that, that closeness with us. And so um, that is a, a really helpful and a, and a meaningful picture. What I think David is really pointing to, though, so if we follow this logic, right? So we have wilderness refuge, strong tower, the tent or the tabernacle, right? If we're, if we're leaning into this tabernacle language, then the shadow of the wings will more likely be under the shadow of the wings of the cherubim that were on the ark of the covenant. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? We, when did we go through Exodus? It was a while ago, right? Yeah, months ago. That it feels a lot longer than that, right? But um, the second meaning, um, again, is, is the, um, the shadow of the wings of the cherubim. So I'm going to read for us how that ark was designed, and we'll see what that means uh, for David here. So this is a long passage. So Bear with me. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on it um, four feet. Two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So why do I read this whole thing again, right? Because the way that, the way that this was built is really important, right? And what it communicates to us is very, very important. I think what David is picturing here is that if he could be under the shadow of the wings of the cherubim on the ark, 
the epicenter of where God would interact with humanity on earth, then there was literally and figuratively no place that he could be closer to God on earth, right? And so it would be the most secure place in existence, right? So we see this four-step process. David feels far away, but then he moves to a rock, this wilderness refuge. He moves then to this strong tower and then into the tabernacle and then eventually into the Holy of Holies, right? This place where God would meet with Israel on earth, right? Um, now, as a side note, uh, when I was digging into the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, I started to do a YouTube search for the Ark of the Covenant. I was looking for hopefully a video from like the Bible Project or something like that, that would, you know, they, if you're not familiar with the Bible Project, it's amazing. Um, they have all these theme videos and stuff, and I was like, surely they've done a project on the Ark of the Covenant. They have not specifically done one, but there are lots of other people who have lots of thoughts about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it was wild, y'all. Like, absolutely wild. I, <laughs> I sent Daniel uh, a link. We sent a few back and forth. Um, one example. Uh, there are some folks that believe Moses stole the Ark from the Egyptians, which, <laughs> just starting there, amazing. Uh, he did not, by the way. Uh, which is why they chased after them into the desert, and that, this, that the Ark of the Covenant was some sort of super powerful radioactive power generator that they had developed that was also somehow connected to the Great Pyramid of Giza. Um, and apparently, according to one um, expert, uh, this is all uh, explained in the Bible somewhere. Um, I missed, I either have a different version of the Bible um, or a different translation or something. Um, there are lots of thoughts about the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant. But, but what is true is that for Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, um, again, was the place, it was essentially God's throne, right? It's where he sat to, to provide protection and to provide uh, these commitments and the commandments, right, that, that he would deliver to Israel. And so for David, this imagery of being with the ark uh, was incredibly, incredibly um, intimate, right? He went from being very far away to very close. Thankfully, I was able to make it out of that rabbit hole um, and continue uh, to um, study um, but again, um, you know, one, one of the things about, um, about the ark, though, and, and David wanted to be close to it, is that for him, that was, the highest, that was the highest thing that he could think of. That was like the absolute closest place that he could be to God. But um, what is incredible is that if we trust Jesus, um, as Daniel uh, always helpfully says, if we give to him our believing allegiance, um, we have his spirit inside of us, right? We are closer to God. God is closer to us than David could have ever imagined. And I think that it is uh, really important for us to spend time intentionally reflecting on this fact. Um, I have spent um, a little bit of time this week just kind of sitting and pondering how amazing that is, right? The fact that... Um, 
that David couldn't have imagined being any closer, and yet here, here we are. We have, we have Jesus. So after all of this, right, David, uh, David responds with the word selah. So he lays out this move towards intimacy, and then he just says, stop, breathe, pause, reflect, right, consider. Um, and so I think it's really helpful uh, for us to do that. Um, a question for you. What is it that you need to remember? How has God been these things for you in the past? And then how can we use this recollection of his path faithfulness to give us confidence moving forward that he will do it again? So David rightly responds to these truths and prays to God who has given him the heritage or the inheritance of those who fear his name. At the time for David, that would have literally been the land, right? That would have been the land that he stood on. Um, and also the benefits of covenantal life um, with God. Eventually, as we'll see in a minute, that covenant is fulfilled in Jesus, right? And, um, and that inheritance is even greater than, than land. So we've had our first prayer for protection and expression of confidence so let's look at the, the second one. So starting in verse six, he says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. When I was initially just reading through the psalm, so whenever I have the opportunity to preach, the first little bit, I just read. I just try to read the psalms. I try to read the psalm in the context where it falls in the book of psalms, and then I try to just read and reflect on what the psalm is saying to us through its words. And this section, when we get to verse 6 and 7, felt really disjointed to me because David goes from speaking in first person to third person. So he's crying out like, you know, I'm, I'm lost, I'm far away from you in the wilderness. And then he says, in third person, speaking of himself, right, prolong the life of the king. And so, um, you know, some, some folks would have even said that this um, was like added later, like some faithful scribe wanted to honor the life of the king. And so they put in this, this um, prayer kind of as a response to David's feelings of distress. Like, David felt this way, please help him, right? But um, I do think that this is actually from, from David himself. Um, so he prays here, um, and he has in mind more than his own well-being, right? I think he does have his own well-being in mind. But with this language, right, he says, uh, prolong the life of the king, may his years endure to all generations. What he is calling back to is the covenant that God made with him, right, to give him an everlasting throne, right? So let's look at that, um, that section. So in, in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, starting in verse 8, it says this. Sorry. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David. So this is Nathan uh, relaying this. To David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David here is essentially reminding God of the covenant that he made with him, right? To, to extend his lineage forever, right? Um, I think what is, um, what is amazing, right, is we see that happen, right? Like Solomon came along and he builds what? He builds the temple, right? Um, but did that last forever? It did not. Um, things eventually did not go very well um, for Israel. In 587 BC, the Davidic kingdom collapsed, right? And these thoughts had to be refocused to a new kind of king, which was this coming Messiah. The, significant, the significance sorry, of the psalm is not being changed necessarily, but instead fulfilled when we see Christ in it. Christians use such a prayer for their king's glory, Christ's glory, and his people's blessing. Eventually, Jesus comes along as the fulfillment of this prophecy. Luke 1, 31 through 33 says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Like David, we should pray that the king would reign forever. And that king is Jesus. God does what he says he will do, and because of that, we rightly then should respond in praise, which is what David does here at the end of the psalm. Um, before, we, before we move on to that, though, one thing that really struck me was the end of verse 7 where it says, um, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Um, as I was reading through a couple of different translations of the psalm, I was reading uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message, and um, he does a really amazing job of personifying these things almost as guards, right, that are, that are standing watch over um, the king. And I imagine, um, you know, as I imagine these two guards maybe guarding me, not that I'm the king, right, but... Um, as I imagine them standing guard over me, I can't think of two things that I would rather be guarded by than the Lord's steadfast, unfailing love, right, and his faithfulness. And so maybe that's, um, maybe that's encouraging to you. So, um, so we've seen this second prayer, right, and now we see this praise. In, in verse 8, David declares, so I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. 
We've already seen this vow language earlier in this psalm, and we see vow language all throughout the psalms. And so um, vows are not something that we often take these days um, outside of marriage vows usually, right? Um, but in, in that time, uh, vows were incredibly important, especially um, as, as people would relate to their deities, essentially, right? Um, they would make vows all the time. You know, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. And in a sense, this is what David does, right? He, he is calling out for help. God helps him, right? And so he responds and prays. The fulfillment of David's vows when God has proved good on his word was this expression of gratitude, this expression of thankfulness. And for David and for us, thanksgiving is a response of the heart to the mighty acts of God. David promises to do this day after day, right? And this language is not so much that it is uh, etern- you know, that he's doing this eternally as much as this picture of consistency, right? like, I'm going to get up and I'm going to recognize that you have, you have upheld your promise to me. And because of that, I'm going to give you this response of praise, right? It's a decision that David had to make over and over and over again, right? It's a decision that we have to make too every day. When we wake up, we have to look at God and say, you have done what you said you were going to do. Because he has proved that that is true, right? He has proved faithful. And so we should respond with that consistent praise day after day after day. So um, a question, right? Is this then how we respond to God? Are we doing this? Are we responding to God in faithfulness every day? I am not every day doing that. Right? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we could probably say we do not do that every day. But thankfully, as we've seen here already today, God is faithful. And he's not so far away from us that when we cry out to him, he cannot hear us. Right? So taking all of Psalm 61 into account, if there's one big takeaway, um, I think it's this. Even when we feel far from him, God is never too far away to hear us. And when we call on him and remember his faithfulness, the only right response is worship. Now, um, that's, not always, that's not always easy, right? Sometimes, and maybe even today, you feel like David felt at the beginning of Psalm 61. You feel far from God. You feel like you're on the edge of death, maybe, either maybe, maybe physically, if you're sick, right? Like that is very real. Um, maybe spiritually or emotionally, you feel far from God. You feel dead, right? Or like you're going to die. But we know and we can see because we have this testimony, right? We have this word that, that God is faithful and he's right there. Um, it wouldn't be um, me up here um, preaching or leading worship, if I didn't at some point reference Every Moment Holy. Um, I've recommended, recommended them before. I cannot uh, recommend them any highly, more highly than I already have. Um, and uh, in the second volume of Every Moment Holy, all of these prayers 
um, are centered around death and grief and hope, right? And um, I, I have found in, in my past that when I am experiencing grief, it is that, that is one of the hardest places for me to find language for God. Have, you, have any of you ever felt that way? Like you just don't, you just don't know what to say. And uh, that's why books like this, I think, are, are so helpful. But I just want to close uh, by reading a prayer uh, from this. And it is one of hope. Um, it's not one of, um, you know, immediate, uh, immediately everything being better. But um, it's called A Liturgy of Praise for This Day of Life. So if you'll pray with me, uh, we'll do that together. And then Daniel will, will lead us as we as we respond. Um, I just want to say that, uh, that there are going to be people in the back. Um, our prayer team will be available. And if you need to sit down with someone, if you need to um, have someone hear your cry, um, those people are going to be ready and willing and glad uh, to do that for you. And so uh, don't hesitate uh, to go meet with one of them. But let's pray together. O God, who created me so that you might love me and display your glory in me and so that I might forever delight in you, hear my prayer. This has been a hard road that has ground down my mortal hopes, my defenses and my strength. My prayers of late have often been requests for healing or relief or the calming of my fears, but even in the midst of pain and dismay, I pause today and I give you praise. I praise you for your past faithfulness it is a light by which I learn to trust your providence and kindness today. I praise you that though this road is trying and I am wearied, yet here I am, still present in this place and time, alive to live this day that is today, still moved by beauty, stirred by song and story, yet comforted by the good company of friends, still capable of rich conversation and laughter and moments of joy and right sorrow, still able to practice a prayerful, expectant silence that tutors my soul to seek its rest in you. Still drawing breath in this day, which though it has its hardships, remains a day in which my heart might be further shaped by your spirit and your shepherding. For all these blessings, I give you praise, knowing that today, this day, is a day you have decreed I should live. And so I can trust it is also a day in which you will supply every grace that is necessary for my soul to flourish, though my body weakens. Even when I stand at that utter edge of mortal life, I would yet raise a silent song of praise, a praise for your mercy, praise for your goodness, praise for your love, praise for your grace, praise for your long faithfulness and for every good work you have done in me, through me and around me. I would praise you then for your promises, which have held me and given me hope in the darkest of hours. I would praise you for placing within me a homesick yearning for my eternal destination. I would praise you for the path of salvation opened up to me by my Lord and King, at whose throne love and justice and mercy meet. Each day of life is a prelude to that life everlasting, and all the good I have known flows forward into that eternity. There is no insignificant day, not even the days of frailty and pain. I cannot always see so in the moment, but I trust you and confess it to be true. 
Let this good confession also rise as praise to you. Lord Christ, O oh my soul, observe again this day the goodness and the faithfulness of the God who saves from sin. Disarms the sting of death and tramples low the victory once claimed by the grave. He holds your hope of life and resurrection. Observe and offer him the worship due his name. Though my strength wanes day by day, O oh Christ, may the song of praise rising within me wax ever stronger. May it be a daily rehearsal for that cry of purest, deepest praise, drawn spontaneously from my whole being. As naturally as breath exhaled in the moment I meet you face to face at last, so that over the threshold of my death and immortality, this may seem a small stream of praise, but it might rush seamlessly into eternal oceans of wonder and adulation. Amen. Amen.